guys, I'm sorry. I am telling you right now, because I read this recently. This is still on my mind. So of course now just more dirty thoughts are popping in my head. I'm gonna toss it all out. You know, an acting would say, use it. We want you to use it, cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, we do want to take advantage of it since we don't we don't know how you feel. All right. Hey, welcome to a <laughs> extra special bonus exclusive interview uh, on 1980s. Yeah. Now, hey, normally on our, our weekly show, we're in an examination of 1980s pop culture and its continued influence today. Today's a really good uh, example of that, and we'll tell you why in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you, my name is Will, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hats, co-hosts, I was looking at John's cap. Only one of us has a hat. (laughs) And John. Now look. I have one. I could put one on. (laughs) John's image, cat. Now look, you know me mm-hmm. well enough to, I mean, this isn't going to shock you. The image on John's hat is tiny. I mean, because I'm on my screen, he's tiny. I've got other stuff up on my screen. Oh, yeah. It looks very phallic to me. Oh, oh, I can see why you As would As if say it's that. pointing, let's see, see uh, right mm. to left. So the mm. franks are on the left and the beans are on the right. <laughs> That's what I see. Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's what I, I see. I'll say go see. Kind of pointy. <laughs> what are you kind doing to John? <laughs> Sucking it back into your torso? You're going the wrong way. Go the other way. Um. <laughs> there you go. That's it. That Now it's filthy. Nope. Now it's weird. Okay. Thank you Some so much. Some of the things you were discussing last week we could apply here. <laughs> well, yes. And actually, <laughs> look, as I say this, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. But you know what? I, uh, once again, and I blame myself this time, we have a guest on once the show. Again. So I make it extra spicy right before they come on. It was inevitable. <laughs> Well, I know. That's why I say blame myself. But I'm going to say right now, though, it's appropriate because this book by Sky and McDonald, our guest today. Um, oh, did I say that? That's why it's a special episode. On today's episode, we're going to be speaking mm-hmm. with author yeah. Sky McDonald. The author, her, her newest book yes. is The Not-So-Nice Girl, which is set in 1986, which is, you know, of particular interest to me. And, uh, you know, for, for reasons uh, I'll talk with you about briefly and uh, certainly I'll get into it with Sky. But I want to say this, and I'll tell you guys this, and I'll tell her this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never read a romance novel. Have you guys ever read a romance novel before? I have. Not many. Okay. But I definitely have. And I enjoyed it. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should read more. <laughs> John? Okay. <laughs> I figured. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what, John? Yeah. And then you'll relate to this, I think, because I've never read a romance novel either. And mm-hmm. o- only recently mm-hmm. my wife started reading them. She usually reads uh, uh, nonfiction, historical nonfiction, you know, and then recently yes. she's mm-hmm. been reading uh, romance novels and uh, what are those m- cozy murder mysteries and stuff like that. Anyway, I've seen her... S- <laughs> yeah. Oh, just for the record, that's yeah. not the kind that I read. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was like Victorian or something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and more recent ones seem mm. to have been moving away from those on the covers, which are very intimidating when you're a young person and you see these, mm. you know, John and I talked about our, our, our male role models uh, earlier <laughs> this week. Talk about, I mean, you know, we didn't go for the buff ones, but knowing mm. that girls love those books and seeing those covers, that was intimidating. Yeah. What does wool mean? <laughs> All right, let's move on. So oh, you now I have to look it up. Never mind. Okay. That's, I take it all back. All right. So, Cat, when you read when you read these books, I mean, do you find yourself uh, swooning at the uh, spicier parts? Mm-hmm. I do. Uh, uh-huh. I, I would never mm-hmm. have imagined literature could do that. And I've, I've witnessed my wife, you know, oh. not two feet from me in bed, like, whoa, what's going on over there? I'm reading a book. Can I see other pictures in that book? It's just text. Uh-huh. It, oh, I, all you need is text. Yep. Chapter, I want to see three in the Not So Nice Girl. Holy cow. Really? Yes, it got me. Oh my gosh. Oh, can I have that? What's that? I'll send it you. I'll send you a copy. <laughs> I need to get that. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's in the rotation now. Um, <laughs> sorry, Sky, but you wrote it. 
But um, the thing about it, John, too, I think mm. most, the reason why I felt, look, I'm, I'm not even kidding. It's very uh, sexy, very, very sexy chapter. Mm-hmm. I won't spoil it for you, but sexy things happen. And I think the thing that maybe really sucked me in or made me feel more connected to it and therefore emotionally involved and therefore titillated is that it was set in 86 <laughs> and the setups to it make me feel like I was in the 80s. And they're uh, kind of flirting uh-huh. this between these uh-huh. characters felt, so already I was there. And so like being a teenager at that time, like you said, John, to have a man and a woman, a female character, male character flirt. I'm like, oh, I remember when it was like this with me. Oh my God, what are they doing? So I was already kind <laughs> of, you know, had the male protagonist as I was, a, he was a stand in for me, you know? So when these things start happening, I think that was the, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> no. Huh. Yeah. Mm, I, I yeah, I wasn't I don't think I knew how to flirt. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever did, but I feel like this time of my life is like a recapitulation mm-hmm. of that period of time. And so, I, I feel like I should read that book so mm-hmm. I can <laughs> Oh yeah. redo my experience. Yeah. Cat <laughs> You will mount this book like it's a speaker playing Careless Whisper. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. <laughs> You'll hear the sax playing in your uh, head. There was no mounting. I was oh. draping. She said, she said draping. What does that mean? Like you swoon and fall over it? <laughs> That's a gentle mount. <laughs> Guys, I'm sorry. I am telling you right now, because I read this recently. This is still on my mind. So, of course, now just more dirty thoughts are popping in my head. I'm going to toss it all out. Well, or, well, can I yeah. can I add to the dirty thoughts here, unless you had something else? No, to no, I was going to. Well, speaking of dirty thoughts, I guess I was going to ask you about Kat. I was, <laughs> oh, please do. It's great to have you yeah. back. You were gone Aww, earlier thanks. this week. And I was wondering if you had a chance yeah. to listen to our episode earlier. And oh, I know, you know, John and I, I maybe talked about things in a way or things that we wouldn't normally talk about, not that we wouldn't in front of you necessarily, but we tried to make it, I don't know, push the envelope a little bit. Of course I listened. I've listened more than once Okay, because I loved it. Oh, good. (laughs) Absolutely loved it. And by the way, John, I did not judge you listening or at any other time. You you were concerned that I was going to be judging you, but no, (laughs) not even, not even remotely. So I want you guys to know, I love... (laughs) What are you laughing at? <laughs> you had to clarify that for John. He's been holding on all these days. He was worried. Um, okay. One thing I love that you guys discussed was yep. um, your attraction to particular women mm-hmm. as being more than just their physical appearance. Right. So we reviewed our list going uh, down your watchmojo.com of the 10 sex, with who they determined were the 10 sexiest women from the 1980s mm-hmm. and gave our mm-hmm. thoughts about that. Right. That's right. Now, Listeners, Mm -hmm. if you haven't listened to that episode or if you started and that's when you decided to stop, please don't stop. (laughs) Just keep going. Keep going. It's absolutely worth it. (laughs) So so there's a whole lot I could say about it, but I'd like to hone in on a couple of a couple of things. Uh, Your discussion in particular of a powerful or confident woman being attractive. Mm -hmm. That that's great. (laughs) Like that is just great. But. More importantly, the theme that came up around um, that it's okay for females to be sexual beings um, and it's okay for them to be interested in it and exploring it or expressing it. Um, Of course, I feel like things are better now, but it's not gone that um, that restriction against women. And, And back then, it like it really did feel like a dichotomy. It was. Uh, you're either the girl that you could bring home to mom or, or you're a slut. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. There was not, not a whole lot of gray area there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you put even one toe over in that, you know, in the uh, sexuality department, you, you risked then being slut shamed, which is not even a phrase that I, I like uh, saying, yeah, but I you did, know what I, I, I mean? I saying it last week, but I knew. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Folks. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it, it was a thing. You know. it, it was a thing back then. So, um, yeah, so your point of it being okay for, um, for a female to be a sexual being at any time, not just when it suits your immediate purpose, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least I think that's what you meant. Yes. <laughs> um, that, that was great. And I really loved that. And so never mind whether forward or confident sexuality is a particular point of attraction for someone or not, you know, someone can decide if they like that. Right. 
But of course, respect and acceptance should not hinge on someone's sexuality because we're all sexual beings. Yeah. And, and I think I said this and, last yeah. week, like if you want to have sex with a woman, uh, mm-hmm. you want to encourage that then. I mean, <laughs> you think women are just waiting around to have sex with you? No, you want them to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> by the way, Kat, you're hitting on the theme of this book, The Not So Nice Girl by uh, our author, Sky McDonald, without even realizing it. Because The Not So Nice Girl, it's exactly okay. that. She's been told by, you know, folks and feels this pressure to be the girl next door, but has other desires and is trying to figure out what makes sense for her. Whereas the male yeah. protagonist is told to find a girl who can be both, who folks think is the girl next door, but it's kind of that, you know, mm-hmm. that awful phrase yeah. about something in the kitchen and something in the bedroom. That kind of thing. So they're both wrestling with these different sort of gender, you know, norms that were imposed on them in the 1980s there. (laughs) Thanks, John. That, that does, does Star Trek have something for slut shaming so we could stop saying that? (laughs) Triple trembling, trembling or something? Will you dig something up for us there, John? John. Oh man. Just a couple other things I wanted to mention. Um, John, you brought up Ali Sheedy's character in uh, war games. And I had already listened to that episode, to that Gen X grown up episode. And I had already loved how you brought it up and how you discussed it. And actually I I was going to send you a, oh, you're welcome. I was going to send you a fourth listener email, but I didn't get around to it. So here it is in person (laughs) that, that I, I really loved that. Like the whole, like you said, good for you, girl, get what what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <Woo-hoo. laughs> well, again, I just really love that you, that you, uh, I appreciated how, you know, the respect that you gave to that, the respect you expressed actually in both of you, both of you. Bless me though. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> both of you. And, and one other thing you both, like you guys helped crystallize something for me that I already had a vague notion of. And, um, but it hit me in a clearer way. So on our prom episode, um, we talked about dancing and, and I told you of how it took me a while to be comfortable with, with free dancing, like on the stage dancing, that was no problem, but, right. but just being myself. And, and just to be clear, when you say stage, you know, Kat was a is trained dancer, various forms of modern jazz, <laughs> tap, ballet, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So I feel like perhaps um, one of the reasons that I love dancing so much is because it supports my acceptance of myself as a sexual being. Sure. Uh, Like, Mm -hmm. like I don't have to tell you, of course, or anybody that like dancing and sexuality go hand in hand, right? That's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, bodies moving together in space set to a rhythm. You know, it's, it's not hard to make the connection. And actually I want to geek out for just a minute here. Um, there's a, a child psychiatrist named Judith Kestenberg, um, who did her work in the fifties and she, um, was amazing. And she set, uh, developed the whole system of observing and notating body movement, almost like in the same way that you would music. Is this for like, for choreography, right? I mean, that sort of thing. No, actually, right. No, this is, was actually for developmental purposes oh, it right. was doing a study you said. Okay. to apply like in everyday situations um oh, and okay. th- there's a whole lot more to it but for her purposes she was studying children and um and their physical their physical and psychological development hand in hand and um so she observed and established the importance of very particular rhythms which i won't bore you with here <laughs> that begin at birth Okay. And wow. appear in sequence over the first four years of our life. And a couple of them form the basis for emerging sexuality. So like this stuff, it's amazing. Like this stuff is, is mm. really early. <laughs> uh, 
So look her up. And, okay. um, but for me, like just, just to kind of play off of that for me dancing, um, anyway, it became an acceptable form of expression for something that being sexuality mm-hmm. that I struggled with accepting and expressing. Right. And, uh, so I absolutely am, or was a product of that time of, you know, the late seventies and the eighties. Um, but what, like once I started being able to, to freely dance, it immediately became a favorite thing. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know, just hearing you guys talk about it and thinking and thinking about it just made me made that click right. together. So thank you. Yeah. That makes total that, sense. Yeah. And I'm tossing out. Yeah. So many, I line up jokes, you know, as people are talking, I'm tossing them all out. All, cause this is a sincere thing. And I will thank you for sharing. I'm ready. No, I'm ready for them. Cause I gone. knew all of this. And actually, you know what? Was to, be honest, to be honest, it wasn't a joke so much as it was something I was, I was about to share that you made me think of, but it's probably too personal, too personal. No, it's okay. sex is involved. Go ahead. Does that scare you off yet? No. no. <laughs> uh, I'm ready. I'm like ready. John says, it's a, it's a <laughs> long John story. I'll save for next time. Hey, you know what though, Kat, I'm glad you said all that because, well, for, I mean, obviously it's great to hear you, how you connected with those things and how it maybe uh, uh, set off some light bulbs for you. But you also made me mm-hmm. feel less concerned about us going too far in the sense, uh, you know, but for your warning that you just gave mm-hmm. new listeners. And I, and I agree that might be in order, <laughs> uh, but that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you still understood the, the tone, the spirit, et cetera, that we were. Oh, what absolutely. Uh, what we meant. But to balance the, get yes. things out, I think it's only fair that we huh? give you a shot to do what John and I did. Oh, really? Yes. So I have got the top 10 sexiest men from the 1980s by Miss Mojo, oh which is a, was a companion thing done by Watch Mojo. But I didn't update the sound effect, so it's the same thing. Wait, where's the guy doing that? I don't know. That's Meg Ryan from When Harry Met Sally. I, I couldn't think of her. I was wondering if it was her. <laughs> John, look, it's not that you and I are not confident enough in our own sexuality to be able to comment on these. But for the interest of time, Kat, you just give us a yay or nay as far as, okay? All right. Now, All right. I'm I, not going to go on and on. I did not create this list, okay? Just like, let's look at the other one. I didn't create it, all right? All right, Kat, number 10 here, according to Miss Mojo, the 10 sexiest men from the 1980s, LL Cool J. Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. All right. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Number nine, Harrison Ford. Yes. He does it for me, too. Uh, Prince. Yes, with a caveat. Okay. Back at that time, I I think he was, he was a little almost intimidating. Huh. He was, he was a lot. You think he became less so, intimidating as time went on? As I got more comfortable mm-hmm. with myself. Oh, I it, see. It, it normalized it. Okay. It normalized him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a... <laughs> well, like you guys, yeah. I'm, I'm like quickly thinking of, yeah. it's not just, <laughs> it's not just a physical thing. There's also other other things right, I'm thinking right, yeah. of. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. couldn't connect with Prince. I think he's like one of those, some of those women that we talked about, John, which is just something mm-hmm. about him. He's, made, he's like an alien from another planet to me. He just <laughs> like, are you, yeah, he yeah. doesn't seem like a human. And maybe it part, and part of that probably what influences gene, his genius. All right. So Prince, there you go. All right. Number seven, Rob Lowe. Yeah. Not, not tip top, but okay. He was okay. She's not going to say <laughs> no to anybody, John. Uh, <laughs> number six, I'm waiting. Kurt Russell. Not at the time, no. But now, now, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, number five. This again. This is the 1980s top ten sexiest men. Miss Mojo, John Stamos. Yeah, kind of like Rob Lowe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, he was fine, I guess. Number four, yeah, John yeah. Bon Jovi. <laughs> this is a tough one because I get it, but not for me. Okay. I, I understand why yeah. someone would perceive him that way, but not yeah. for me. I agree he had with tough that. competition. I agree <laughs> with that. Physically, outwardly, yeah, again, yeah. these are all attractive men, but. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Number three, Mel Gibson. Again, 1980s Mel Gibson. Yes. And Matt, put yourself there. We only, you only knew what I, you knew then. There's a poster. Of course, this is an 80s, but 
There's a giant poster that my my best buddy gave me of him from Braveheart in my basement. Because your buddy knew something about your feelings for Mel Gibson? Yeah, we saw that movie three times on opening weekend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a really long movie too. Huh. Oh, I don't know that they're it, but they don't hurt. Not a deterrent. <laughs> that is interesting. Cause I even think like, I'm trying to think like, how do I feel about a woman wearing a skirt? Uh, hmm. uh that's, there's so many variables to consider, but like mm-hmm. you said, cat, it could work. So yeah, maybe it's the same for women. Like, I guess, unless you're, you know, I, uh, I could see John going for a utility kilt, yeah. you know, maybe not the, uh, yeah. Like, you know, with your cargo shorts. Is that like a, yeah, is that a cargo kilt? Just got pockets all around 360, 360 degrees. Yeah. Now, do you, do you just turn it? Like if you need something in the back, where did I leave that? And you just turn it. You don't have to reach back there. It's like a lazy Susan and a cargo pants. Lazy Susan. Wait, is this a real thing? Did you guys make this up? No, no, this is, is a real. cargo kilt. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> I know I'm googling it. Utility kilt. Maybe utility kilt. I guess actually is the. I guess well, a carpenter <laughs> in Scotland would need it. I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Mm. All right, number two, Patrick Swayze. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I get that. The guy could fight. Mm-hmm. He could dance. He could sing. <laughs> Good looking dude. He could dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And number one is uh, sexiest uh, man in, from the 1980s, according to Miss, Miss Mojo, Tom Cruise. No. Oh. <laughs> He's never been on my list. Yeah. Never. I was actually hoping you were going to say Simon. I, I didn't fix it. But, it's exactly, yeah. you know. Well, you know, that's the thing. You have a chance yeah. after to say who, what's, who's missing. You know who you have. Yeah. 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 No, Tom Cruise was just. Not, he didn't, he didn't do anything for me, really. <laughs> yeah, he's another one of those guys. Yeah. Like, how do you connect yeah. to him? He seems not human to me. He mm-hmm. seems in, like, mm-hmm. I think I've said this mm-hmm. before, and I apologize to anybody who I know. Look, I, I am of the opinion and under, understanding that, you know, gender is fluid and certain our constructs of gender yeah. are created, much like our concepts of time. Something exists. Mm-hmm. It's us who put a label to these things. I get all that, and I agree. Yeah. So forgive me yeah. for being a 52 year old man and having a, no better way to phrase this, but he seems asexual <laughs> to me, you know, like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. He'd be interested in, I was going to say I, me, but <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely not interested in me. All right, whatever. Forget that. All right. Thanks Kat for doing that. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm, See, now mm-hmm. you said sexuality and backseat and that's what I'm all about. Oh. All right. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Google it. I just want to reference two, like from from a media that is not music. Yeah. I would say I would pick um, like Michael J. Fox. Oh, or okay. um, who else was I thinking of? Somebody else popped into my head. Oh, or or like Kevin Bacon. Okay, could be the dancing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, hey, yeah. something like that. Yeah. All right. Hey, speaking of uh, sexy topics and the 1980s, definitely check out this book, uh, The Not So Nice Girl. <laughs> and hey, in a moment, we'll be uh, back with the author of this, uh, again, spicy chapter three. There's other spicy things too, but chapter three will get you hooked. I can't uh, wait. <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment with Sky McDonald. Our guest today is the author of the popular Antibell series, contemporary romance novels set in the author's hometown of Nashville, Tennessee. Her latest novel, The Not-So-Nice Girl, however, takes a leap back to our favorite decade. It's set in the summer of 1986. And much like our favorite films of that era, it's a heartwarming romance about two people who find love when they least expect it. A nostalgic and romantic read, it will transport you back to a time of mixtapes, pastries, and first love. 
It's available everywhere now, but you can support a bookstore local to you by purchasing it from bookshop.org. There's links in the show notes below. Please welcome to the show, Sky McDonald. Hello. Thank you for having me. Of course. Hey, I'm thrilled to speak to you. First of all, I've got to say, Nam de Plume, or is your name Sky McDonald? Because that's just like a perfect <laughs> author name. Thank you very much. Sky McDonald is the name that I gave myself. Okay, very good. The uh, It is my legal name, but it was not my name at birth. Okay. It was also the name of my grandparents' golden retriever. <laughs> is that right? Yes. So we have the whole Indiana Jones. We named the dog Indiana. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought of. Oh. It's the first thing that I think. <laughs> Look, your 80s cred is already deep. Uh, did you, you. did your, were your grandparents around to, to, uh, see you name yourself after their dog? They were not sadly. How do you think they would have uh, thought about that? Or I think my grandmother would have said great day in the morning. Um, <laughs> however, to be fair, my grandfather would have also been pleased because the Isle of Skye is where from our clan McDonald is ah. from. So I get the historical credit as well. The, the dog thing is funny, but Really, it's it's about like the roots. <laughs> wow, I never even realized how Scottish your name is now. Yeah, that's yeah. wow, that's really cool. Hey, I'm so excited to talk to you today because you know our podcast celebrates, examines uh, how important 1980s media was by taking a look not only what you know with this looking nostalgically back at what happened, but reflecting on contemporary movies, TV shows, songs. Uh, and certainly books. And of course, we were talking to you today about your book, The Not-So-Nice Girl, which is set squarely in 1986. And I say that because there's so many wonderful little reminders uh, that were in that decade. Mm -hmm. Why the 1980s? Well, that's a little bit of a math flub okay. because this book is technically a prequel to my first, my debut novel, which is not suitable for work. And it is the story of that main character's parents. I wrote that book back in the mid 2010s, so around 2014. And at that time, mathematically, if I backed it out, it would have made sense that around 1986 would be about the time her parents would fall in love. Mathematically now, that doesn't quite make sense. Mm. But we're just going to go with it because that was when I set about to write the prequel book. That was what I set. And I did a lot of research to make sure it was right. And no one's really counting. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. Sure. Did you, as the, as years went on and you finally got around to writing it, and like you said, the years don't line up necessarily. Did you regret at any point? Oh no, uh, this could be easily set in the 1990s. That would be an easier decade for me. Maybe less research. No, I didn't. No, because when I got to doing it, I realized there's not a lot of contemporary fiction being set in the 80s. And I was mm. like, well, there's a gap here because that's an awesome time to set some fiction. Right. And I was having so much fun putting it in the 80s that I was like, no, I'm just going to go with it. Because, you know, my, my current novels or my series that's set in present day is not set in any specific year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's I think it's totally fine. So I was happy to go with it. Right. And I'm going to say this only as a person who grew up, you know, in the 1980s. I was a kid by the beginning. I was an adult by the end. I don't know what you'd say about, look, not, not to disparage anyone else's generations, but <laughs> what's iconically 90s? I, 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 you know, that would be so romantic. I feel like 80s is romantic, no matter what age you are, when you grew up, to set something I, in the 90s, 2000s. I, I don't know if there's something so, that would, uh, you know, evokes so many, I don't know, specific feelings, maybe? Mm, I don't, mm. When I start thinking about the 90s, I could go on a list, but I'm here okay. to talk about the 80s, so I'm going to go with that for now. <laughs> AOL dial-up? You've got mail? I mean, I just don't... Okay, I'm, I'm Jinko biased. Jeans. Yeah. Jinko <laughs> jeans. Pearl Jam. Okay. I feel like it's a short list, guy, but we're not here to argue about that. You sure, love yeah, the 1980s, right. clearly. We both do. We can agree on that. Yeah. Okay. So how do you go about then... Uh, did, you know, you said you do research. What What is the research? Because uh, it certainly comes out in your book with the, you know, the songs, the movies, references, et cetera. But how do you determine what, I guess, what gets in, what doesn't to make it authentic? First of all, this book is not, The Not-So-Nice Girl is not technically historical fiction mm -hmm. because historical fiction is set 50 years oh, in the past. Oh, we're getting so close. we're holding on to it <laughs> as long as we can. Um, but I felt like I was doing a sort of setup for a historical fiction novel by doing this research because mm. there are like, I couldn't have told you about 1986. I was alive, but I couldn't have told you sure. about all of these things. So in doing it, I really wanted to think my first question was, what are my characters into? Right. Are they yuppies? No, they're not. They are more of an indie rock kind of vibe, recent college graduates. So then I started thinking, who would they listen to? 
And I did a lot of research into indie bands of the time. I mean, of course, I know The Cure, but like mm-hmm. getting into who was out and who was hot on the charts then versus and, and then in pop versus indie, more of like an indie underground kind of rock. So I did that. And then I started thinking what movies are out at this time because it's summertime. And so what would they be going to see? And then the other part that I really wanted to work in, because in this book, they all sit around watching Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> yeah. So I was actually excited because I was able to find the specific lineup of Saturday morning cartoons uh-huh. for the summer of 86. So I was able to even accurately talk about that because Saturday morning cartoons, I mean, it's just like a staple of childhood. Oh, gosh, so. yes. Especially yeah. in the 1980s. Yeah. Bowl of cereal and Saturday morning night cartoons. Yeah. That's right. Um, when you're writing a book like this and want to... Uh, paint a picture that it's set in a certain time. Is there, is there, are you aware of a potential danger of, uh, you know, those paint strokes are too, you go over them too much. It's too, too, you put too many references, et cetera. Yeah. I wanted to use, I wanted to make it brightly colored, eighties colored without being heavy handed. So specifically when you said that, the thing that came to my mind was how much slang to use, Mm. right? doofus, mm-hmm. uh, rad, things like that. They pop in, but you don't want your characters talking like caricatures. Right. Right. Like I think about Spicoli, right. right. From <laughs> fast times. Like you don't want to be mirroring or make them seem not like real people, but rather like just spouting key phrases. So I was very careful with that. And other elements that just made it like the fashion, you know, sometimes they're just wearing jeans, but then sometimes you see the acid wash, uh, mm-hmm. So just making sure it's there, but not like beating you over the head. 80s, right. you know. Yeah, I think I think I love how it's, you know, look, you're, you're a talented and skilled and experienced author, certainly. So it's expressed in a way that's within the context of the story, you know, mm-hmm. someone. So, yeah, I agree. It's not uh, expository. Here, we're in the 80s. Reminder. <laughs> that said, being the fact that it's said in the 1980s, obviously things are different in the 80s than today. You write these other stories that are contemporary where you've got cell phones, you've got computers, you've got email. So I almost feel like people lean on it too much in contemporary media generally. But mm. there's a quick way to connect with people and, and certainly different advantages today that we didn't have. Did you see those as a blessing that... You know, you know, sort of the quaintness of the 1980s in that regard, or was it a challenge? Oh, I thought it was a great, I want to use the word element for my story. Mm-hmm. Like it really set up a couple of pieces of confusion and unknowing in a way that was super handy that we don't get now, that right. would not be realistic now. And so I really enjoyed that. I will say, I don't know if you experienced this too, because I grew up without a cell phone in my hand. I rem- I can remember years <laughs> that that wasn't a thing. Right. And <laughs> Yet I don't remember how we functioned. <laughs> um, and indeed, my mother really barely does either anymore. It's it's like this hazy memory of we knew where to be and mm-hmm. that we would meet people. But how did that happen right. organically? <laughs> right. So, right. It's hard to remember. But there's a, a moment in my book that is one of my favorite. Like, I'll brag on myself for this one because yeah. everything everybody's tense. A lot is going on, and our main character, Sam, is waiting at his house. His phone rings. He picks it up, and his friend answers with, where are you? And his answer is, you called me. Where would I, right. where else would you be but home? <laughs> right. And that, to me, like, I worked that in very deliberately because now saying, where, where, where are you, is a very legitimate thing to say on right. the phone. But back then, it's like, well, no, duh, I'm at home. So those pieces, and it also allowed for some confusion in the beginning of the book, which I don't want to spoil too much, but basically just not having constant contact with your friends, you wouldn't have an ongoing stream of information that would have allowed for some things that happen in the book that are a bit like, oh, a confusing identity that wouldn't have been realistic if we were all texting on the group chat. Right. And I guess the other thing that I liked was um, the ability to have them not know about the movie. So like they're talking about Ferris Bueller's day off and Sam, the main character is like, Oh yeah, that's the one about the guy skipping school. Right. (laughs) There wouldn't have been ongoing ads and feed and you wouldn't follow like, you know, Broderick on Instagram to see his newest release. So even the awareness of what was coming out or what was going on, it's just not the constant information that we had. And I did have a lot of fun taking it back to that more like this is my world as opposed to this whole world is my world. I like that. Right. 
Yeah, you remind me that, uh, and again, no spoilers, but yeah, doing a Facebook search for a character might have cleared something up like instantly or, mm-hmm. hmm, exactly. interesting. I also love how Pivotal, is, maybe Pivotal is too strong, but had the role that the record store plays. I don't think that's giving too much away, but. Not at all. It's so, it's one of those things where, in a lot of your book I read, and I've got to say, I guess I'll say this too. I have, I don't think I've ever read a romance novel. I didn't expect this to be a romance novel. Welcome. And I've, you know, I've sat by my wife on the couch when she starts swooning, you know, when she's halfway into a Bridgerton book or something like that. And I'm like, I just don't get it. And I don't know, by chapter three, I think it is. Holy cow. And I caught me by such surprise. You know, there's a very, let's say, steamy scene that happens. And mm-hmm. I didn't expect or anticipate that I'd feel the feels. But I, and I'm wondering if part of it is because I was transported and I was a young person, you know, I was a, a little younger than your characters, but I had romantic experience in the 80s, probably my most romantic experience in the 1980s because of just starting to, you know, post-puberty and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Uh, <laughs> I, I say that as an aside, but because uh, the record store, okay, maybe I'm spoiling too much, but the record store plays such a, it's it's one of those moments where I thought, oh, does, did everybody have that growing up? Because certainly when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, for me, it was like that too. Yeah. You know, I don't think you're giving too much away. I am thrilled that you welcome to romance. I am so honored um, to be your gateway. (laughs) And um, I love, that's one of the things I love about my genre is that you can tell like a really fun story, but also hit people in the feels. My trademark phrase is I'm here to make you laugh, cry and swoon. Um, But I really had a lot of fun with the record store, not only for the spicy scene, but also just for creating this common place. And I think I think that's a thing that we've really lost. And, you know, I don't like, I'm not here to like say, oh, everything is bad now. I don't think that's true. But I think the ability to gather and be and discuss things that we like, you know, um, I think that that was a really important kind of thing that is a little bit different now and is not the same, does not translate over into social media. Gathering with people, talking about the things that you love and the things that light you up is a really important part of just having social interactions. I was honored to be at a book con in Houston last, uh, at the beginning of this month and just being around people talking about books, like it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. So the record store is very important to me as a place and an experience growing up for me. I didn't grow up. I, I wasn't a teenager in the eighties, but, um, you know, we definitely had our places that we hung out mm-hmm. and, you know, it was just like where you could find people. Right. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed creating that, but also I also enjoyed creating the record store because the character of Mac who runs the record store is based squarely on my father who oh. did run record stores in Nashville in the okay. 1980s. Wow. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. A lot of people are seeing like, ah, what's his name? Tommy Chong from that 70s okay. show <laughs> as Mac. I'm getting that a lot. Mm. I saw, I will obviously saw my dad, but yeah. I, I was kind of leaning into like the big Lebowski, like the mm-hmm. dude, um, a little bit. I mean, he's right. a caricature of my dad. He's not really my dad, but my dad went by Mac cause McDonald and he did have a golden retriever. And right. so <laughs> it was, it was, um, a fun way to kind of pay homage, but also to create a space that was super important for my characters. Right. Yeah. And talk about music. Yes. Yeah. Even just that, the idea, like to your point that, uh, and this is my experience in the 1980s and and I I was, uh, listeners of our show are probably sick of me talking about this, but one of the things I did as a young person was DJ and I did that until being an adult. So the record store was a place where you went to learn about music, as you're saying, and we relied on the max of the store to say, well, what's good, what's not good. And, uh, and I like, and, and, and I could just do a whole thing about music, but the fact that they could even you know, argue about bands or someone's shitting on the chili peppers because they don't know who they are or whatever, or, you know, the cure, I think is another Mm -hmm. one. And it's fine. You know, we just have this sort of back and forth of, you know, opinions and information and, you know, you come away trying a new record or you don't. And I miss that. Yeah. It's not, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think it about, um, you can't write a book or the books that you write without having them be based on real life experiences, characters, you know, people that you, you need. In part, it's a, good leaping sort of jumping off point, you know, if you can focus on somebody like that, but also it's the kind of things you want to express for one reason or another. But since you're writing in the 1980s, were you mindful of hitting on some of the tropes of the 1980s in the the development of your characters? You know, that's interesting. Well, give me an example that you're thinking of there. Well, you know, again, I'm trying not to give anything away, but I think it's interesting that um, 
Well, one character described as looking at like Andrew McCarthy's character in Pretty in Pink, mm-hmm. Blaine. And huh, if this is too much, I'll cut it out. What okay. I thought was really neat was we have two sides of two different tropes from the 1980s that are identical twins. <laughs> that's never been done, I don't think. But you had the f- sort of, so that's what I mean. So you're writing for, you know, you, you, you can pluck Blaine out of Pretty and Pink, and so you write to that character. You pluck, uh, you know, for me, for me, Sam certainly initially felt like a John Cusack type of character. Mm-hmm. But um, so were you mindful of that? Well, this is like this kind of this character and this. That's interesting. Um, I wasn't basing them on any of my favorite like trope characters from, from the eighties, you know, and there's a lot of conversation now about the tropes of the eighties and how some of them are problematic. And I'm, I'm a big fan of taking things for what they were. Um, and, but also knowing when we've grown to understand things that maybe weren't as ideal. Uh, Molly Ringwald has some really interesting essays, uh, out about her reflection of her, her time with John Hughes. Uh, but all that said, you know, we have the side, the friend of Jennifer, who's very much the the nice girl. And I think really, instead of focusing on 80s, I was really thinking tropes of almost real life, right? Mm-hmm. This expectation of being a nice girl, being nice. And Jennifer, uh, El- Eleanor's friend, is nice. And she's just fundamentally that way. Whereas El, um, Eleanor has worked really hard to figure out what that even means to her and feels like she's in defiance of that. So trying to break those gender stereotypes, if you will. And then mm-hmm. on the other side, you know, the toxic masculinity freight or to use a phrase that we use now um, that Sam is working against about what it means to be a real man. Mm-hmm. Right. About being like a good husband, husband material right. and feeling like he doesn't meet that. So I guess the definitely the awkwardness of the 80s, the, you know, the breakfast club vibe of like, who are we and mm-hmm. who are we? Who do you try to define us to be? I definitely wouldn't say I was like reduxing the breakfast club but that young adult because these characters are about 23 of finding yourself and getting past what everybody thought you should be is definitely important so i would say in that way yes yeah it's interesting that it sounds like without even realizing it you did look you 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 gotta know that you're a good writer certainly because you write books and you publish them well, thank you congratulations but the the fact you, you did something really neat um Maybe again, maybe just subconsciously in a sense, because so in our episode earlier, John and my, my co-host John and I were talking about our fictional role models growing up. Mm. And in researching that, I learned, well, I learned about John and, my, and I, as we were just talking about it, some really like, wow, self uh, revelations <laughs> and about each other. But researching it, I found these interesting sort of bookends to pieces written in the 1980s, one early and one later. One was in the early was saying that, you know, we have this feminist movement that started certainly earlier than the 1980s, 70s, 60s, et cetera, where we had a lot of women's literature classes. And part of the goal, rightly so, was to help, uh, you know, inform folks or uh, destroy some of these stereotypical, you know, constructs of gender and gender roles and stuff like that. And this one man was saying, we need that for men too, he believes, right. because men are also pigeonholed. And I think when I look at the 1980s media, like you're saying, you had the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone's at the early 80s, but then by the end, we were starting to, much like we did with with female roles, question those, you know, those tropes and had, mm-hmm. you know, men that were maybe a more emotionally available and more vulnerable. And in this piece at the end of the 80s, this author was written by a woman who makes a, essentially says that Kevin Costner's character in Bull Durham was becoming maybe, we were on our way to defining what would be a better man than let's say Conan the Barbarian hmm. because he's mature, he's emotionally available. And well, I'm talking a lot and, and you're the guest uh, that um, he he's attracted to a sexually experienced woman, an independent woman, a strong-willed woman, a mo- woman who's not necessarily, you know, a housewife or mother. And your book, mm-hmm. does, your book kind of evolves like that. It starts one way. And by the end, the characters do this examination and come out somewhere other way. I love that. I love that you observed that. Yeah. I did not intend it, but I think that's <laughs> awesome. Because I do think that obviously women belong everywhere, you know, women's place and all of that. Sure. And that uh, and the feminist movement got that right. But I do think it is important to take a look at the way men are expected to be men and the toxic way that that can manifest and the expectations that we really put on both ourselves internally and externally, right. the expectations that we have for how everybody should be behaving and I really, I'm a big fan of the idea of giving each other a little bit of grace that we're all working to be the best that we can. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are exceptions, right? There are obviously things that should not be tolerated and that are not okay. But sure. in general, 
all these things that we've been told are what adulthood looks like or what male looks like or female or all of these things, they're, they're very, very oppressive. And that's an interesting take about Bull Durham. I mean, that is a great, great movie. And that's a good point, right? We're seeing people who feel more human. They're flawed. They're a little bit older, which is great. And Mm -hmm. there's just that openness of like humanity as opposed to some sort of stereotype. I mean, and indeed, like in romance, that's, that's evolved hugely in the past 20 years from, you know, the perfect airbrushed Fabio on the Mm -hmm. cover and the idea that this is your leading man to all sorts of leading men and women, right? All genders, all races, all heights and sizes. These things are now being embraced by the romance community in a way that I find absolutely beautiful. Right. Good. Yeah. Hey, and like I said, I don't read romance novels, but for me, I know if I were a reader, certainly early on to to your point about the covers, those covers intimidated me as a man, you know, Mm -hmm. because, you know, and maybe, maybe part of it is, look, I, 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 I imagine I must, I believe I'm a feminist. So some of this may sound sexist because I'm pointing out gender, but in that sense, men maybe have been given in part of that stereotype is they're fine. You know, it's, they're fine Mm -hmm. with however they're cast in these sort of roles. But like we're saying here, you know, I'm grateful for this other sort of thing that's happening where we're sort of taking a look at that and saying, well, no, maybe, maybe men want to expand to, or have been expanding. And like you're saying, literature is allowing them to do that, you know, as sort of in these yep. newer books. Yeah. I think, I think it is an important thing. And I, this is not to, oh, poor baby, any, any part of the gender spectrum. Uh, this is not to, oh no, it's not, it's like not to release culpability for behaviors. I do think though, the more that we define what being, X, whatever X is, right? Whatever the blank is that you're filling in, the more that we try to define what that is, as opposed to just saying humans are a lot of things, a Mm -hmm. mosaic of things, the more we are forcing people into roles that don't feel comfortable for them. And I think it's important to give people, like I said, a little bit of grace that we're all trying to figure it out, right? And these expectations that are held, they're not useful, right? Because nobody's harder on you than you are on yourself. So saying like, oh, this is what a man does, or this is what a woman does, or this is what anything, right? You can fill that blank in with political, I don't want to go down that road, not even Mm -hmm. close. But all of those blanks that we could fill in really are a slippery slope of something that you may need to defy, Mm, right? right. Or that maybe doesn't fit you, but you feel like you have to. And that's what you see in Eleanor in this book. She feels like because she's been directly told this is what a good woman right. does. It got her into a lot of mm-hmm. trouble and it really shattered her identity for a while. Like she's trying to figure out if I'm not a good, a nice girl, what am yeah. I? And so those labels are just useless, right? In the end, what you really see is that those labels aren't important, but it certainly did do a number on her to begin. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I learned with my co-host was how we did this analysis. Our, our female co-host was gone. So we, we thought, hey, it would be funny to just be men. And we obviously tongue in cheek. <laughs> but what we learned talking about fictional female role models, that we were most attracted to those that were well-rounded humans, you know, and not just uh, intended to be a pinup or an ingenue or a damsel in distress, you know, like you're saying, a real fleshed out character, more like someone we would mm-hmm. know in real life. Totally. That's... um. You know, that's one of the things that I work on in writing is making characters that feel like people you would know, Mm -hmm. right? People you would want to be friends with because they are flawed. And, you know, my guys in all of my books, they're all working on themselves Mm -hmm. too. And my women, certainly one of my, one of my big common themes in all of my anti-Bell series, which is what my series is called, is that the women are strong, smart, and really have to learn how to accept themselves before they can claim they're happily ever after as a relationship. Right. In romance, if you know or don't know, you're going to have the couple get together, right? It's a guaranteed, mm. it's not a spoiler. If you don't have that, you are not in a romance, okay? okay? It's, it's akin to Tolkien's take on fantasy, where part of what he, he did this whole treatise on fantasy, where he said one of the benefits of reading a fantasy novel is that you are guaranteed a, a satisfying resolution. And you can go on this journey and have the ups and downs of adventure because you know you're going to have a satisfying resolution at the end. Mm. And very, and you know, some people dog romance saying, oh, it's not realistic or oh, like you always have the HEA. And it's like, <laughs> No, but that's like Tolkien said, that's you get to go on the heart wrenching roller coaster of falling in love inside of romance books because, you know, you're going to get that and you're safe in knowing 
that you'll get your HEA, which is happily ever after. Sure. So that's, that's an important point when you're reading a book like, like any romance. But I think it's also one of the reasons that I really work to make sure my women in my books fall in love with themselves mm -hmm. and accept who they are fully before you get that happy, happy ending. That is a relationship because if you don't love yourself, mm -hmm. if you're not okay with you, then that, that HEA with someone else is not realistic. You've got to love yourself right. first in my opinion. Yeah. Well, Hey, that's a fantastic opinion. Yeah. And it's certainly a great message. You know, I've got to say, I wish I knew what you said about the uh, happily ever after that you're guaranteed that I wouldn't have been so scared reading your book because, <laughs> you know, like Fair I enough. said, some of the, some of the scenes and some of the characters and certainly Eleanor in particular. And I, I guess, you know, when you're reading a book, you sort of cast yourself almost, right? You mean you sort of, so I felt yeah. obviously most identify with Sam for lots of reasons, probably, you know, uh, most of which I said, he's kind of this more identified with his sort of journey, I suppose. But mm -hmm. I was scared of Eleanor in real life. And I've met, I've met a couple of Eleanors who terrified me and ultimately tore my heart out. Aww. At least I thought Eleanor in here did a lot more growing. And by the, and by the end, of course, as like you said, no spoilers, things work out better than they did for right. me. So I was honestly seeing Sam in these situations, I was like he's going to get destroyed. <laughs> yeah. I will tell you to be fair. Um, when I was at the book con that I mentioned, I had someone who downloaded not suitable for work. And after I met and engaged with them and the next day she came up and she was like, I was up until three in the morning. I knew that I was going to get a happily ever after, but I kept reading that book. Like what's going yeah. to happen? <laughs> you know? So I, I will take that as a mark of good storytelling and say, thank you because I don't want you. I want you to forget that you're going to get it <laughs> and then get it. Yeah. That's the point. So fantastic. I'm very, yeah, glad. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I thought, Oh no, I've been here, Sam. I wish I could hug you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us, Sky. Certainly wish you all the best and we'll remind our listeners to check out The Not-So-Nice Girl. In the very least, if you love the 1980s, it is like a time machine. It's like stepping into a phone booth here uh, or a DeLorean and uh, stepping back into 1986. Or a record listening booth. <laughs> <laughs> Sky's book, The Not-So-Nice Girl, is available everywhere. There's a link in the show notes below so you can order it from bookshop.org and support a bookstore local to you, those uh, small mom and pop shops that uh, are important in our communities. And uh, like I mentioned, it's an emotional, it's funny, it's uh, definitely sexy, and it's set in our favorite uh, decade, one of my favorite summers, 1986. Hey, if you can think of any, if you know of any other uh, contemporary authors, artists, musicians that are keeping the 1980s live in their books, movies, music, and so forth, let me know. I am Will at 1980snow.com. You can send me a message there. We'll be back next week with a full, a brand new full episode where we're going to be talking about the lessons that we extracted, good and bad lessons, both from 1980s love songs. And that'll be an interesting topic. I'm curious to see what uh, you all think about that and what uh, my co-hosts do as well. So, on behalf of Kat and John and myself, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now.